for being here with us this morning. My name is Peter Davidson, one of the pastors here at Lakeview Christian Center, and we're in the midst of studying through the Gospel of John, so hopefully everyone has a Bible, and if you do have one with you, if you'll be opening to John chapter 13, and for those of you who are from New Orleans, it's John 13. So for normal people, John, for New Orleanians, John 13. Well, we had to speak two languages when we were in New Orleans, you know, New Orleans, and then everybody else's language. How many of you have ever heard this? Wash your feet. Wash your hands. Wash your face. Anybody ever heard these things? How many, how many of you have ever heard that? The others of you are very dirty, aren't you? You know, it's like, oh, we can tell you haven't heard that. <laughs> there is an air about you that you haven't heard. Wash your hands, wash your feet, wash your face. It's an imperative that all of us are accustomed to. Washing. Why do we need to wash? Because we just get dirty living in a dirty world, there's a lot of dust and dirt and whatever around us. And so we have to continually wash. Well, this morning as we venture into what probably is the greatest concentration and the greatest intimate conversation of the Lord Jesus with his disciples. Chapters 13 to 16. Of John, culminating with that great prayer in chapter 17, where Jesus, we are listening into his intimate, personal conversation, the love relationship between the Father and the Son. Enormously important, enormously instructive to us. And so Jesus, during this period of time, 13 to 16, is, if you remember, preparing his disciples for his death. And part of the preparation is to prepare them how to live once he's gone. Just someone to let them know, I'm leaving, calm down, everything's going to be okay, which he does. But that when I'm gone, these are the essentials of living my life, revealing who I am after I'm left in the flesh. And so he does this in the beginning of the gospel, um, in the beginning of chapter 13, by, by acting out. And when I say acting, not pretending, but living out or walking out a living parable. He begins with a living parable. You remember a parable is a story that has implications perhaps beyond itself and has truth there to be applied to our lives. So let's look at this chapter and see what we have here in John 13, 1 to 15. As we do, let's begin with prayer. Father, Father, now... 
We are entering into the deep side of the pool. Father, not that we have not experienced some deep water. But Father, now we will hear from the Lord of glory. And we will experience from the Lord of glory. His heart for you. And his heart for us. Father, this morning our prayer is this. Not that we just hear words and learn things. But Father, we personally, individually, and corporately will experience that same heart that Jesus was demonstrating at the Last Supper. His heart for you. And his heart for us. Father, would you touch us this morning, minister to us, so that we may be able to receive and be built up and strengthened and protected and provided for. So that we may be those sons and daughters that are wonderfully and joyfully pleasing to you in all things. For your namesake, for your glory, for your honor, for your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read together. We're reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is the version that we choose to minister from publicly like this. And so, John chapter 13, 1 to 15. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and knowing that he had come from God, and knowing that he was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward... You will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was, who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just 
as I have done to you. Get the picture. Imagine this. The God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament. The creator. The majesty. The one who opened the Red Sea. The one who delivered Israel from bondage. The one who called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. The one who established David as king. The one who had a great temple built for his temporary dwelling place upon the earth. This great and majestic majesty, this holy God. Imagine this God washing feet. Washing feet. This is, I don't know whether we understand this, but to others of other religions, other than Christianity, this is scandalous. It's shocking. It's shocking enough that the God of all glory would become a man such as we. But to stoop to the lowest place. To take on the form and the activity of the lowest servant to wash feet. In fact, in Judaism, they typically, needing to have their feet washed because of the dirty roads, did not even allow Hebrew slaves to wash feet. It was something that a Jew simply did not do. It was for the lowest of the servants. It was a task of demeaning. God would never stoop so low as to wash my feet. And I'm not about to wash anybody else's feet, right? Anybody? Oh, I'll do a lot of things, but don't ask me to serve that way. I love God, but there's there's certain things that I won't do. There's a certain limit. There's a certain place I won't go to. And yet, the heart of the Son of God has no limitations to how far He will stoop down in order to bring us up. Is that not the grace of God? It would be instructive for us, maybe not this morning at this point, but at some point. Just to sit alone, turn off the television, the radio, the internet, the whatever, and think about the condescension, the humility, the lowering of this majestic God. Why? So we could be picked up. Washing feet. But yet this is what the Son of God does, assuming the role of the lowest servant. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Well, he doesn't do it primarily because the feet need washing, although they do. So I believe that Jesus is displaying through this unprecedented activity of serving 
He's displaying his love for the Father by washing the feet of those whom he and the Father loves. He's displaying his love for God the Father by washing the feet of those whom God loves, therefore whom Jesus loves. Now, in the Old Testament, the worship of God was preceded by the washing away of the defilement of sin. And so what Jesus is doing here is not just an activity that needed to be done because feet were dirty. But he was doing something that had been a work of God and a command of God from the very beginning all the way through. And Jesus is bringing it to its completion and revelation to show us what all of that meant what it was all there for, what it was pointing to. And so in the Old Testament, and there are just a huge number of examples of this, and I'll just read one short one. Washing is connected with the washing away or the cleansing of the defilement, the filth, the dirt, the guilt of sin. That's what it had to do in connection with the worship of God. Listen to this from Exodus 30 as I just bring a couple of three different verses together. You shall also make a basin of bronze. Remember that great washing basin during the VBS. We had a big lava over here, huge thing with water in it. And every morning in VBS, as we began, we showed the necessity of the washing that preceded everything else. In connection with the sacrifice, sacrificial system and the worship of God. The washing was the very first activity before going into the presence of God to worship, to serve. Washing was prime, the first and most primary function. And so you shall make this big basin, this lava, for washing. And you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons. Remember, Aaron is the brother of Moses. And God is giving this instruction to Moses. In which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. They shall wash their hands and their feet. Why? So that they may not die. Washing is imperative to our life in Christ. So water, you remember now, is a symbol. It's a symbol of God's cleaning agent and cleaning activity. It's a symbol of God's cleaning agent and cleaning activity. It's wonderful to take notes because in taking notes, you can remember these things so much better. And so as I see you writing certain things down, it encourages me that you will go back and remember these things. Washing is a symbol of God's cleaning agent and cleaning activity, dealing with sin. So what is Jesus doing? He's using the symbol that was very obvious to these men, although they weren't getting it. And they'll remember later. He was using the same symbol to teach us and them how to remain clean and protected from sin's contamination and destruction while we are walking or living in a fallen world. You see, the problem that Jesus is dealing with is not external dirt. It's internal. You remember the cup? You Pharisees, what do you do? 
You take great effort to clean the outside of the cup. You do all the external religious things. And yet on the inside, in your heart, you are not allowing God to cleanse you of the defilement, therefore of the activity and of the pollution, of the destruction and of the death of sin on the inside. You are full of dead men's bones. Because there was a resistance to washing. They were going to wash themselves, you see, with their religious rites and activities and belief system. They didn't need God to send his servant to wash them. I can do it myself. Thank you. How many of you have experienced that with your children? I can do it myself. I think they start that about three days after birth. I can do it myself. Why is this so important? Why? You see, God's glory, God's honor, the truth and the manifestation of who God is and how God is, His nature and His character are wrapped up and are bound up in our walk, in our daily activity. You see, the Son of God has died and has paid the highest price of the wrath of God so that having fulfilled the payment of justice, now the mercy of God can come to us and can bring us into His eternal kingdom. And that demonstration of the glory of God, the manifestation of the truth of who He is, is now being and should be clearly and compellingly demonstrated in one central activity in our lives. My daily living. Not just what I do at church. Hallelujah giving. Thank you, God, for that. Part of it. But it encompasses every aspect of who I am as a living being. There is not one thing left out which does not in some way either promote or distort the glory of God in my life. Nothing. Everything about my life, internally, externally, privately, public, will say something about the glory of God. And on the day of judgment, that will be one of the primary bases Of our judgment as we enter the kingdom of God as God's children if we are born again. Remember in John 15, 8. For in this is my Father glorified that you what? John 15, 8. We should know this. In this is my Father glorified that we bear much fruit and so prove or demonstrate to be what? My disciples, the way we walk proves discipleship and it promotes God's glory. And those two are together. You see, the walk of our salvation is our walking in newness of life. In Romans 6, 4, Paul talks about walking in newness of life. That Jesus has died and has been raised again for the purpose of us walking in newness of life. 
That's why he went to the cross. That's why he was buried. That's why he rose again. That's why he ascended into heaven. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit. That's why we have been born again and been filled with the Holy Spirit. So we could walk in newness of life for the glory of God to be manifested so all creation could see what a great God we have here. Amen? So you see, being kept clean is not optional. It's mandatory. May I say that again? Being kept clean is not optional. It has nothing to do with my whim, with my time, with my disposition. It has everything to do with the glory of God. Being kept clean is mandatory because it has everything to do with God being who He is to be manifested in us as His children. It's central to God's glory. What did Jesus say in verse 8? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's strong. And so it says to us this morning, church, that we're dealing with an extremely fundamental and significant aspect of our relationship and life in Christ. You have no part in me if I don't wash you. How many of you want to take a chance that Jesus doesn't really mean what he said? Oh, I don't think so. I think once I'm saved, that's all I need to worry about. You know what I mean? I am a secure believer. Well, so am I. But we are secure as we walk with Jesus. We must be washed. It's imperative. Because you see, what's going to happen today is this. Let me tell you what's going to go on. When you get to the door out there, there's going to be an enemy. And he's going to say, don't worry about it. He's going to say, don't worry about it. The old man's extreme. He's extreme. Oh, that I could be more extreme in this. For my days are often filled with men and women who are not being properly washed and whose lives will be destroyed by the enemy. You better be right that I'm extreme in this. And you would be too if you see some of the things we see. We're not to take lightly the destruction in the body of Christ by sin, Satan, and the world. And we take it seriously. So you better be right, I'm serious about this and I'm extreme in this. Why? Because Jesus said, if I, you don't let me wash you, you have no part. He's worse than I am. I'm nothing compared to the Son of God. This is good old Jesus, sweetie pie. Who would never do anything to ruffle your feathers. <sighs> we don't know him, do we? He don't know me very well. I'm a Tweety Bird. Some of you. you know, happens to be one of my favorite heroes. <clears throat> when you get to the door, when you get to the door, when you get to the door, you're going to hear a whisper in your heart. I don't need to do it that much. I mean, you know, it just, it, I, it, it's, I can just kind of make a, you know, kind of, when you get to the door, there's an enemy that wants to steal 
Remember Luke 8? Remember the three soils from you and New Orleans Searles? Remember the three Searles? Three of them. Taken away, taken away, taken away. Four soil, abundance. 30, 60, and 100. And so Jesus said in verse 18 of that chapter, Be careful how you listen. Be careful how you listen. Because this is central to my glory. What kind of water is Jesus talking about? <clears throat> in Ephesians 5.26, Paul is giving instruction in that particular set of scriptures from 22 to 33 concerning the relationship of marriage between a husband and wife. And in verse 26, saying to the husband that Jesus is cleansing the church, that the husband is to do what Jesus does, cleanse his wife, keep her clean spiritually, as Jesus is cleansing the church, by the washing of water with the word. By the washing of water with the word. You see, in verse 10, if you look back in verse 10, in John 10, uh, 13, look, back, look at verse 10 there. Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet. Do you see that? Are you with me on this? Everybody sees where I am. John 13, verse 10. See, Jesus is making a distinction between a body bath and a foot wash. A body bath and a foot wash. What he's saying here is our spiritual bodies, if we are saved, if we have received him as our Lord and Savior, if we've been born again, if we had the Holy Spirit living in us, if that's the case, our spiritual bodies have been bathed by the defilement of sin when we were born again. Remember the work of the cross. It is finished. The bathing has occurred. It's called the washing of regeneration in Titus 3. Listen to these words in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. How? How did He save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's when we were saved. That's when God took us out of the muck and mire of the world. Spiritually speaking, Colossians 1.13, we sang about it this morning, having transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, his beloved, Agapitos, son, the son of his love. And when he did that, he washed us of the guilt and of the penalty of all our sins. So we don't need another bath. Aren't you glad of that? Once bathed, never to be bathed again. Amen? It's called having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 We are justified. See what love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 3.1 We're saved. We're cleansed. We're accepted. We are clean as far as the penalty and the guilt, but we're not clean from the activity of sin 
Not until we put on a new body. But we're clean of the most significant issue of sin. You see, now our bodies are clean, but we're walking around in a dirty world. So we need God's soap to wash our feet. God's word is his soap. God's word is his soap. And the Holy Spirit is a person of God who's going to apply the soap to our walk, to our feet as we travel through the world. And that's good news. (laughs) But you see, remember with God, he's very interesting. Some people like to say, all God, all God, none of me. Throw it away. It's trashy thinking. It's bad theology. Amen, Matt? As long as Matt with me, I'm okay. It's not all God, all God. It's all of God with all of me. It's all of God with all of me. It's what? All of God with all of me. And so God's ready. He's ready to clean us up. The Holy Spirit is there. Towel in hand, water, you know. The catch is we got to go out and buy the soap. We got to get the soap and give it to him. Now, the soap is in God's storehouse. But we have to go to the storehouse to get the soap. Can you say amen? You see, the soap isn't going to be delivered to us and given to us. We're the ones who are responsible for going out and storing up enough soap. So when God gets ready to clean us, he has enough soap to get us clean. How many of you know that certain levels of dirt require certain amounts of soap? You know, you get your hands a little dirty, you can do this. But man, you get some of these kids been playing in that dirt all day long. You got to scrub them down. You can't just do a little something like that. It takes a lot of soap. It takes a lot of energy. So this morning, yes, the word of God is the soap. But see, God is not just handing out soap. Hey, hey, you want some soap? Hey, you want some word? We're the ones who are responsible personally and corporately to go get the soap out of God's kitchen. See, for years, I thought, this is God's work. He's going to give me the word. He's just going to come in. I'm going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to, God's going to come do something. But you know, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we got to be filled with something. So Colossians 3 says, you know, you be filled with the word of God. When God fills us with this Holy Spirit, he's filling us with something to use. We need to give him something to use. So when he comes in power, that power is able to use what it is that we have given him to effectively have him minister in our lives. Amen. Now, the application or the washing of God's soap has several results. And my purpose this morning is not to go into great detail here and give us, you know, detailed instruction. But really, I feel the purpose of the Holy Spirit this morning is to encourage us to make sure that we are consistently, continually, regularly getting enough soap. Are you with me today? I'm just going to leave out monstrosities of information. All of you are going to sit there, man, you could have said this, this, this. 
you don't know what I could have said. There's just so much we could have said. We, I was putting this together and I had, you know, just all this. And took a little walk outside, going down the street, getting away from this, you know, preparation. I just need sometimes to kind of get away and get my mind together. And going outside, the Lord says, too much, too much, too much. You're trying to gather too much. All I want you to do, just felt this, you know. All I want you to do is encourage them to get the soap. So that's what we're doing this morning. Encouraging us to be buying soap from God. Remember Hosea, uh, Hosea, what's the name? Isaiah, ho, all of you what? Come and buy something without any money. Buy it with faith. Buy it with pursuit. Buy it with obedience. So let's talk about several areas of soap necessity in our life. Psalm 119.11. If you haven't read Psalm 119, let me strongly encourage you to go home. It'll take about two minutes to read. Those of you who laugh know something about Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the entire Bible. It's going to take a while. But it is one of the most magnificent declarations of the centrality and the beauty and the greatness of the Word of God. Psalm 19 also. Read Psalm 119. 28 references to God's Word, the Word Word, and then just other references, statutes and laws. So it's all over the place in Psalm 119. It's a great, great poem. Psalm 119, verse 11 says this, I have stored up, treasured, collected, purchased, brought in to my storehouse. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, what does that say to all of us? There's only one way for us to overcome sin and to have it cleansed of its defilement in our life. And what is that? By the word of God. I have stored up your word within my heart that I might not sin against you. Colossians 3.16. I just referred to it. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, what they're talking about here is not just a casual reading of God's word for 10 minutes in the morning. These men are talking about delving into the Word as the primary pursuit of learning. The primary pursuit of learning is getting in to the very Word of God, into the very heart of who God is. You see, by storing up God's Word in our hearts, we are storing up the God of the Word in our hearts. I want to make sure we see this. The storing up of God's Word, the study, the reading of the Word of God is not just an intellectual activity. It is that, but it's not just that. We do that intellectually so the Word of God can, by the Holy Spirit, become the God of the Word in me. We are therefore storing up God's Word. <clears throat> we are therefore storing up God Himself in me. Now, can any of us say, would any one of us say that we don't need very much of the Holy Spirit in my life in these days? 
How many of us would admit, I need so much more of the presence and power and activity of the Holy Spirit in me? Well, if you do, and all of us do, my hand can't be raised any higher because I can't go up any higher. But if I could, I would. Why? Therefore, I need more of God in me, and I get more of that primarily, one of the primary ways is the Word of God. Now, we're leaving out a lot of other ways, the prayer and all that, but this is so fundamental. It's the building of a concrete foundation here we're talking about. So we're storing up the God of the Word. We are being kept in constant and intimate communication with the God who loves us and protects us and directs us as we are in His Word in a way that is needed in our lives. What are some ways that God cleans us? What are some of the benefits? Well, first of all, as we've already said, God cleans us from the defilement of just the dirt of sin. Remember in John seventeen seventeen, Jesus is praying and he's asking the Father to sanctify them, to set apart, keep apart, and cause to be uniquely manifesting of who God is. Sanctify them by thy word, for thy word is truth. Sanctification is that process, transformation, that process that God is developing and growing us as trees of righteousness. We are planted as a little twig in the garden of God. And as we are nourished with the word of God by the Holy Spirit, we begin to grow and to grow and to grow into what Isaiah calls the planting of the Lord for the glory of God. Amen. And on this tree is to be hanging huge numbers of fruit, heavy laden with fruit. Why? So the God may be pleased. What farmer wants to go out there and labor in the fields all day long and have a tree looking like this at the end of it? You know, who's glorified in this kind of a looking tree? Some old scraggly looking thing that maybe has a couple of leaves on it and one little, beery, little bitty old berry. Doesn't glorify anybody. We want to be trees of righteousness laden down with the glory of God in our lives. So he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We're being sanctified by the ongoing cleansing process of the Word of God as the Holy Spirit applies that Word to us. Remember Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is what? Living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, the cleansing of the word, which I am storing up the soap, and as the Holy Spirit applies the soap to my mind, to my attitudes, to my feelings, to my desires. How many of us have needed the good washing of our thoughts, of our feelings, of our affections, of our desires? How many of us continually need washing? What would I do? What would I be if it weren't for the good mercy of God, not only saving me, but then every day, maybe hour by hour, sometimes maybe minute by minute, soaping my thoughts, my attitudes, my mind. I mean, there are attitudes in this church which stink to God. Remember the aroma in Second Corinthians? 
their attitudes among us and feelings of anger, resentment, dissatisfaction, jealousy, ambition, unforgiveness, that God is holding his nose over. And we need to recognize this by the word of God as he convicts us at sin. The word of God does that. The knowledge of this word, the knowledge of this God. And then he applies the soap to that, washing me clean so I can be free of that. I can be free of being contaminated by those filthy thoughts. Sometimes when we say filthy thoughts, everybody seems to think it's just sex. Sex is just one of the filthy thoughts. Being angry with another brother or sister is a filthy thought. Being jealous is a filthy thought. Being frustrated is a filthy thought. Being anxious is a filthy thought. Say, oh my God, brother, what else? I need the soap. You see, it's just not pornography. It's everything that is thought contrary to the thought of God is filthy. It's filthy. Oh, I mean, it's just a little. It's filth to God. The question is, are we giving God enough soap to keep our minds clean? And are we allowing him to wash us sufficiently? Them's important questions. Actually, the question is as important as the answer. Are we giving him enough soap? If what we are doing on a daily basis as to the word of God and our time spent in it. Do you believe that's enough soap for God to have to wash all the stuff in you and me that needs to be washed? For me, he needs more than just one little old piece of soap. He needs a continually cleanse of attitudes and of motives. Of impatience and whatever. You see, this is a priority to Jesus. If you don't let me wash you, what? You have none of me. You have no part with me. A second area is a defense against false doctrines. How are you going to know if something is taught that's not correct? You remember the church in Galatia, Galatians? Remember that little book in the New Testament where Paul says in verse, where's it begin? Verse 7, I think it is, somewhere around there, 8. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has put a spell on you? Who has bewitched you? You started off in the spirit. And now you're trying to finish your salvation or complete it by the works of the flesh. Someone came into the church after Paul had left six months to a year later and is polluting the church at the very foundation. And he says, if you continue like this, you are going to fall from grace. He says, anybody teaching anything that is not of the true doctrine of Jesus Christ, let him go to hell. Does he not say that? It's called anathema. See, so may be thrown into hell. Well, that's kind of strong, Paul. Paul would rather the bad teacher to be thrown into hell than the whole church fall apart. He says, you've got to know the word. How do I discern spirits? Wrong teaching. What does 1 John 4, 1 say? What does he say? Discern. Be aware of. Know what's happening. What is being taught. What is going on. 
We know that not just mystically. We know it because we know the word of God. You see, if I said to you, we believe that justification is infused and we're growing in justification. Oh, doesn't that sound good? It's false doctrine. And yet there are churches that have millions of people in it who are being taught that as a fundamental doctrine. But it's false because the word of God stands against it. How are you going to know when the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons or whoever else come to your door? Well, they seem nice. They're sweet people. They couldn't be. No, they're wrong. Why? Because the word of God stands against it. In the beginning was the word and the word was a God. Now, where did that privative come in? A God. See, that's what they believe. How are you going to protect yourself and your mom and them and your children if you don't know the word of God enough to protect yourself? Thank goodness Paul and whoever made this good. Where's Paul? Gloria, where are you? I know he's in here somewhere. Thank you for making this a good pulpit. Well, we can't stomp our feet, but we can lay hands on this pulpit a few times. Test the spirits. Test by what? First John 4, 1. Test by what? How I feel. How they look. Sincerity. Test by the word of God. The plumb line of Amos. Everything that is in plumb with this line is right. Everything out of plumb is wrong. The word of God. The plumb line. Amen. The plumb, plumb line of truth. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you know, I love this. How many of you know that the word of God says, if you, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How many of you know that's the word of God? How many of you know it's not? It's not the word of God. It is not. No, 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 no. It is not the truth. It is not the truth unless you stick it, the first part in there. You can't have half truth and forget about the first part of the truth. I was teaching one time and. At the New Orleans Mission years ago, and after the service, one of the pastors came up and he said, Yeah, brother, I like that word, resist the devil, and he'll flee from it. I said, It's not in the Bible. No, resist the devil, he'll flee from it. I said, That's not in the Bible, it's not the truth. Oh, he took out his Bible, his hands couldn't go any faster. Got to James 4 7, and I said, Read it. He said, Submit yourself. He stopped. You see, it does not say, Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It says, therefore, what? Submit yourselves to God. Then resist the devil. If you resist the devil, he's going to beat you bad if you don't do the first part of that verse. Let us not be a people who only take parts of verses when we need the whole thing. So what does the word say? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. Amen? You see, we've got to store up the word of God. The implication is if you didn't and you're not, you wonder, can you be a disciple of Jesus in an effective way? Perhaps not even at all. Maybe you're a pretender. There are many in the church. Do we know enough of the word of God to be kept free of bad doctrine? Or bad attitudes. 
If you're struggling in these areas, it probably is one of the large reasons is you are not giving. You ain't giving God enough soap. You're staying dirty. I can't get over sin. I keep getting. I can't walk and I get. Give God soap. And believe me, brethren, submit to the washing and you will not walk the same way. You will walk in newness of life. Also, God's word is medicine to strengthen our immune system against temptation. How many of y'all give you have your kids give shots? Anybody get shots in here? Anybody got flu shots? I mean, do do we get immune? Do we get shots for immune system? Do we ever do that? Anybody get a shot here? Could I say hand? Yes. Why do we do that? We do it to be protected from the deadly diseases out there. Now, it doesn't mean that we'll never get the disease, but it does mean that internally my body is being built up in a way, hopefully, to be able to combat successfully these diseases. The Word of God is like taking the medicine. It's the medicine of the Word, Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is Good medicine. Nehemiah 8.10. For the joy of the Lord is our what? Internal heart's strength. Strength for what? To resist temptation and to walk victoriously. Not strength for beating down believers. Proverbs 17.22. A joyful heart or merry heart is good what? Medicine. But where does the joy come from? It comes from knowing the God of the word more intimately and more significantly and personally day by day. And that is as a result of we spend time with God in his word as he communicates himself to us and communicates to us ourselves. Would any of us not give our children the right medicines? Would any of us do that? Would any of us knowing what to do would not give our children the right medicine or medicine at all? Anybody in here would not do that? But are we doing it to ourselves and to our families? Are we taking the medicine of God? Are we going to God's drugstore and getting the medicine that he prescribes called his word of life and of health? He heals by his word. Are we taking enough of it to do the word and to do the work? Are we and our children inoculated sufficiently to be able to overcome the attacks of sin and Satan? We may be giving in too quickly and too regularly only because we don't have enough of the medicine of the word of God flowing in our spiritual veins. You can try what you want to try. But there's only one medicine. It's the word of life. You see, if we're not taking enough and if we're not inoculated enough, we need to be, as Keith said last week, we need to be afraid. Years ago, I'm 65. How many of you remember this when you were children? Maybe before I was, but when you were children... Years ago, in the late 40s and 50s, every summer, what did we dread every summer? 
polio. How many of you remember that? We used to go through every summer afraid. Afraid. Because if we're, there's dirty water out there. What did your mom and them say about the dirty water? What did they say? Stay away from the dirty water. It's contaminated. You may get what? Polio. And then Jonas Salk came out with the shot to begin to inoculate against polio. Free. We were made immune from a deadly disease. See, we need to be afraid. What does 1 Peter 5, 8 say? Be sober-minded, be afraid. Why? Because you see, your adversary, the devil, prowls about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may desire. How do you overcome it? You submit yourself to God. James 4, 7. What is submitting to God? Go to him in his word. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Don't be afraid to quote the word. I mean, you know... I think sometimes make you afraid. God's word is the content of our instruction to our family. Let me say this as gently as I can. In the family relationship with their children, mothers are not given the primary and particular responsibility of teaching the word. No. Well, I give my wife the authority to teach the word of God to them because... No. No. The Bible doesn't say, daddies, pass it on to your wife and they can teach the word. It doesn't say that. Ephesians 6, 4 says what? Fathers. What does it say? Fathers. In Colossians 3, fathers. Teach your children the word of God. Men, if there are men in this congregation, you have children, you are not teaching them the word. You are doing significantly what you should not need to do. You should not do. You need to spend time in the administration of the word of God to your family. Thank God for mothers who do a good job in this and a wonderful job. And they may be doing some of it. But the primary and powerful duty is for the fathers to teach the children the word of God. Why? Because God said so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't it strange how God is? He just doesn't understand how busy daddies are. And how much we have in our minds. And how much better the wife is because she knows more. Oh. Uh. Mm. I mean, she's so much better communicator. <laughs> No. Why, daddies? Because you don't know enough. And your children leave your house and they walk out into that wicked world and they begin to be devoured by anything and everything out there that is of sin and Satan because you have not built them into the word of God. Why? Because you yourself don't know enough of it. You can only give what you got. And if you don't have it, you can't give it. Amen? You're raising your children. Oh, they may be 
fancy in the world. They may be going to college. They may be getting PhDs and all that. But in God's kingdom, are you raising them to be shriveled up nothings? And are you going to lose your children to the devil? Because you haven't spent enough time in yourself in the Word, and then you're not teaching it to your children. Because they know, oh, son, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and daughter, we're going to study this, and whatever. And y'all study this, and tomorrow we're coming back, and we're talking about this tomorrow. And you go sit in front of your television and watch your news and your magazines or whatever, and they know that this is not significant to you. And it begins to engender something in their heart which creates a problem of hypocrisy. Are you getting what we're saying? I'm trying to be very sweet this morning. I think I am being sweet. What? Someone was taunting me out there. It's Joe Fargo. I'll get him later. <clears throat> That's enough. Don't you preach. He got enough of a preacher here. The word of God is our defense and offense. I'm not going to read it, but Ephesians 6 and the 10 through 18, the armor of God, the helmet, the breastplate. It's all of the word of God. It all has to do with our relationship and walk with God. And we are to defend ourselves with the shield of faith and we're to take the sword of the. I'm sorry, I can't hear. One more time, the sword of the word. And we're to take the sword of the word. And when the enemy comes against us, we're to cut him to pieces. We're not supposed to be stomped on by Satan. We are the ones who are supposed to be doing the stomping. Quite frankly, I am tired of seeing so many of God's victorious children being stomped on by that piece of filth called Satan, the liar, the deceiver. Malevolent. Let us take up the word of God, the sword of the spirit, because we store up God's word in our hearts sufficiently on a regular and consistent and concentrated basis. So when he comes against us and we pull it out, we don't have a pocket knife. We have a broadsword. No wonder we're getting cut down by Satan because he comes against us with all these tactics and all we have is a little old kitchen knife. A butter knife. And he says, ooh, I'm afraid. Ooh, what you going to do that? Ooh, wow, that is really bad. How are you going to defend yourself from the fiery darts? The word of God. The accusations, the lies. I meet with folks in my office. I sit there and I listen to lies. Lives and lies. Well, you know, really. And <laughs> maybe that was a slip. I was, you know, maybe. <laughs> and I sit there intrinsically. Do you know what I mean by that? In me, naturally. I have no idea what to say to them. Zero. I sit and listen. Now, old man Treby can identify with this. We sit and listen. And with all the education we have, we have no idea what the person or persons need for their heart. Right, Bill? 
I don't know. Absolutely. When you come to see me, you're coming to see a person who knows nothing about your heart. I don't know what to say to you, but I know a little bit about the Word of God. And I do have the Holy Spirit. And I will pray. I met with a couple the other day. And they talked to me for a solid hour. And I sat there chit-chatting with them, asking some questions. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know what to tell them. I don't know. Then God struck. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the word of discernment. Not Peter Davidson. I assure you, not Peter Davidson. But the word that is stored up in me or in you, used by the Holy Spirit, comes out as a sword and begins to cut through all of the knots of sin that have people tied down and cut through those. Why? Because we store up the word of God in our hearts. Who wants to go see a counselor and all he can do is sit there and commiserate? I need an answer. I need a sword from the Spirit. I need God to do a work. I need to store up the Word. And you need to store up the Word. It takes time. It takes dedication. It takes determination. Reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, believing, obeying God's Word. It's not an afternoon thing you can do once a day or five minutes in the morning. It's imperative. Jesus gives two imperatives. We must experience daily washings and we must wash one another's feet. Just a quick word about washing another's feet. We are responsible for one another. Galatians 6.1 you who are spiritual, when you see someone, you who are spiritual, you know the word. We're responsible. But you see, when you see someone sinning, we have to be involved in that. But don't stick their feet in scalding hot water. <laughs> now, <laughs> you know, some of us come across like boilers. Some of us come across like icebox or refrigerators. We need to find out what the temperature needs to be. Sometimes hot water is necessary. But we need to find out. We need to wash one another's feet. Jesus said, I've given you an example, so do it to one another. You see, washing somebody's feet is messy and stinky business, but we're not allowed to ignore the sin in others. The church in Ephesians, in Ephesus, left their first love. At the end of the first century... That great church that Paul had spent three years, St. Timothy, was nothing anymore. Because it drifted from his first love. His primary duty to know Jesus through the word. Through fellowship and prayer and worship. Oh, they were busy. There's a danger in this church, as in any church. That our busyness will begin to be assumed to be the thing that God wants as much or more than our time in the word. It's dangerous. And we can't let that happen. Let's be a church that this word, this word of God 
is our life. So as we study other books, as other books are in, in, you know, what do you call a book of the month? As we study these other books, wonderful, wonderful teachings. But if we don't have a foundation upon which these teachings are set, they won't work. Let me recommend to you as I close. There's a little study series. Evan Mesh got me these. Let's study. And they had books of the New Testament. Excellent. Absolutely excellent. If you don't know what to do, get Evan May. He'll get some of these for you. And let's be a church of the word of God to the fullest extent. Amen. Peter, thank you very much.